the Jericho Network on Westwood One. This is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to this edition of Westwood One's Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. No co-host for you this week, just just me, lonely old me. Uh, lots of great stuff to tell you about this weekend, May 4th, May 5th, 2018. I will be at the M3 Festival in Columbia, Maryland. Do check that out. There is going to be, oh, well, just everybody. I mean, Faster Pussycat, Y&T, Kicks, Tom Kiefer, Warren, Great White, Lynch Mob, Striper, Slaughter, Sebastian Bach, Night Ranger, Queensryche, and yes, of course, Ace Fraley. And since we're talking Ace Fraley and Queensryche, I certainly hope you enjoyed last week's episode that included... Vinnie Vincent, formerly of KISS, and Todd LaTorre, uh, singer for Queensryche. If you haven't heard the episode, and, well, do I'm, I'm trying to think. Do, do, do me a favor or do you a favor? Do us both a favor and uh, go check it out. And, of course, uh, thank you for joining me uh, today. I have got from the band Godsmack, singer Sully Erna. They have a new album out called When Legends Rise. I have also got one of my favorite people on earth, from the Alice Cooper Band, it is Ryan Roxy, and he has a new album, and you can get a deluxe edition package of it too, called Imagine Your Reality. And if that wasn't enough, I have got, from Sons of Apollo, a super group that features Ron Bumblefoot Thal, formerly of Guns N' Roses, Billy Sheehan of the David Lee Roth Eat em and Smile Band. What a great band that was. Boy, they should do something. They should really, really do something together again. Uh, Derek Sherinian, of course, who also does Black Country Communion. And uh, Mike Portnoy. Mike Portnoy, drummer Mike Portnoy, formerly of uh, Dream Theater. I sat down with him. Interesting interview. It was literally, literally done uh, as we sat in a back alley. That's right. There was no rooms available in the venue. So we just said, hey, you know what? Back alley. Sounds like a place to do an interview. So there, we got Mike Portnoy coming up. And of course, uh, to round out the Sons of Apollo, you've got singer Jeff Scott Soto, his other band, W period E period T period or wet, uh, have a new album out that is definitely, definitely worth checking out. So a lot of checking out stuff. And uh, if you're listening to the show and you enjoy, there are some great, great guests coming up. I have um, recorded interviews with George Thorogood. That's right. Bad to the bone. Um, Richie Sambora, Orianthi, uh, Little Caesar, just a lot of great stuff. Next week, you're going to get Lee Aaron. You're going to get a new band uh, called the Sherlocks, which Billboard and Rolling Stone are very, very hot on. And a great little band out of uh, the UK. And Big John Hart. Uh, folks always love Kiss content. And of course, Big John Hart was the personal bodyguard. He's the guy that, if you remember in all the pictures where there's a big burly guy putting his hand over people's faces so that you can't get a picture of Gene or Paul or whatever without their makeup back in the day. I've got him for you and just uh, a lot of great stuff. And uh, I did mention Richie Sambor. I'm just going to mention it again. Always, always been a huge, 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 right? Huge Bon Jovi fan. And it was a thrill to talk to uh, to Richie. And he revealed a couple of things that were like, oh, oh, okay. Um, you know, so uh, lots of great content there. So here we go. Without further ado, let me give you a man that I have been friends with for, I don't know how long, 20 years, 25 years? God, a long time, probably going back to, 
just trying to think. It probably goes back to um, the slashes, the slash snake pit days, slash slashes snake pit days. So 95, 94. Uh, anyway, here he is, the one, the only one of my favorite guitarists and persons on the world. Ryan Roxy. We are speaking with Alice Cooper guitarist Ryan Roxy. The new album is Imagine Your Reality out on May 25th versus, uh, versus via Cargo Records in the UK. A good day, Ryan. Always, always a pleasure to uh, to speak to you. It is, Mitch. We've been speaking over the years for at least the last, what, 20 years or so. We've we've always had great conversations. This one's, this one's special, though. This is the one. This is the one. And, and as you know, uh, my son is called Ryan Cooper, and it was because of you and Alice. That that's that's where the name came from. And and that's not Get not, out. Get out. No. Seriously? It absolutely is. It he was born in two thousand six and I forget what it was. Either you was that when you had left the band or you had come back to the anyway. You had been very nice to me. We had been talking about all those other um records that you had been doing, you know, Roxy seventy seven, Happy Pill and all this stuff. And he was born at three in the morning after 37 hours awake. And I just went, Alice Cooper, Ryan Roxy. All right, Ryan Cooper. And that's what that's. What <laughs> I like it. It sounds a little bit like a, a name of a soap opera character, you know? Yeah. Dun, dun, dun. Ryan Cooper. Ryan you Cooper. know, you know, it's, it's cool as a lot of the hardcore Alice Cooper fans, um, I've been told, have pets named Roxy, which, which I take is very heartfelt. But to have an actual child, Ryan Cooper, I applaud you. Thank you very much. You know that uh, Tommy, our other guitar player in Alice Cooper, yes. uh, he, he, his son is named Finn Cooper. So Finn Cooper and Ryan Cooper, perhaps rock and roll soulmates down the road. You see, and I actually introduced Ryan, my Ryan, to Alice one day behind backstage when you were opening with um, Iron Maiden. And I said, oh, I named him Ryan Cooper in your honor and Ryan Roxy. And he looked at me and he said, well, then shouldn't it be Cooper Ryan? And I went, mm. <laughs> Well, you know what? You always have to default to the totem pole of rock and roll. And it always is lead singer, then guitar player. Yes. And, make, and then always percussionist or keyboard player at the bottom. Yeah, and yeah, and ba- <laughs> sorry, bass- sorry all you percussionists <laughs> and keyboard players out there. <laughs> and and bass players are way 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 at the back of the van. Um well, right. Uh, players are the so, ones that have all the money. What are you talking about? They're the ones that save the money. <laughs> so so let's talk about this cuz you've got to imagine your reality. Now, it is your first solo album under your own name. We had done Roxy 77. We did Casablanca. We did, um, and obviously you've done dad's porno mag. Um, right. That was a great album too. That's, that's funny. People always ask me, they go, Hey, so what other bands have you been in? I say, I've been in about a hundred bands, 99 you've never heard of. <laughs> so they, everyone knows Alice Cooper. And I think a, a, a good amount of you guys know uh, Slash. So I did the Slash Snake Pit record. But then there's like about 98 other bands that uh, are going, what? And you just mentioned them. So thank you for mentioning it. Yeah, for mentioning them. And of course, my all-time favorite was Electric Angels. That 1990 Electric Angels self-titled debut, just it holds the test of time. What a great beginning that was but all right so so let's get to this one though imagine your reality talk to me about uh making this the the decision to say okay this is not band xyz this is a ryan roxy solo album talk to me about that decision and and just 
putting your name on the marquee on this one? The decision was made because a lot of the guys I was working with producing this record, there's three different producers, and Tommy I mentioned earlier was one of them, um, another, another great guy named Christopher Fallen. Um, we, we had, they just kept saying, look, Ryan, a lot of you, a lot of people that know you know you as a guitar player, and your previous uh, singer songwriter albums with with Roxy seventy seven does have a lot of guitar in it, yes. But where's that guitar guitar that they see with Alice Cooper? We will make the most out of your vocals, but we want to hear more guitar. So they really pushed uh, for me to play guitar, which for the first time in my life, I was really happy because I wasn't the only one wanting more guitar on an album. It was solos. You know, the producers were pushing solos. So at the end result is 10 songs, 10 guitar solos. And pretty much my mission now is to bring back guitar-driven music with lots of solos in it and, and hopefully pass the torch of rock and roll onto this next generation with these 10 songs and 10 guitar solos. Talk to me about, um, other than the guitar solos, sort of musically, where are we? Because we we've heard California Man, we've heard Over and Done, which, by the way, is a fantastic, fantastic song. Um, well, and you, I look back to Happy Pill and stuff, and I don't want to say they were pop, but they were sort of a more melodic rock kind of thing, if that's the proper way to say it. Um, now you can say heavy pop. I have no, I have no problem with being heavy pop. You have to understand. Right. I was raised on 1970s AM radio. Back before AM was just, it wasn't sports talk radio. They actually played music. And I grew up in the Bay Area of San Francisco, where they played. There was a station there called KFRC, and they played basically the Bee Gees next to Aerosmith next to Cheap Trick, next to uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. So I was raised on a lot of pop, soul, um, whatever. The, the Northern California scene was a very uh, eclectic spectrum of popular, I just call it rock music. So at the end of the day, I, I just wanted to make a record that had all my influence on it, but definitely focusing on the loud, abrasive guitars. You would qualify this one then as, as sort of a heavy pop record, which is well. Hey, I I want to make sure that melodies are in the song. Still, right. I mean, it has you have to remember the song to want to to want to hear it again and again and again. So hopefully, this is one of those albums that you want to listen to from track one to, to track ten. Hey, it's it's not going to take a lot of time out of your life. And these days I understand that the attention span that we have, there's so many different options. You know, should I listen to this song or should I check my Facebook or should I uh, listen to this song or should I put up a Snapchat video? And there's so many different uh, options that I didn't have growing up that, that people do today that I wanted to make sure that I had quick, memorable and hooky enough songs with that constant reminder that, hey, there's a guitar solo. There's another guitar solo there for people to come back to and hopefully inspire them to play as well. I know it sounds crazy, but I don't just want people to listen to this album. I want to inspire them to play guitar themselves because I honestly think that guitar-driven music has been pushed to the side a little bit too, you know, it's been pushed to the side a little too much for too long, and I want to push it back into the center if it's possible, or at least help push it to the side or right. push it to the center. And, and so we'll, we'll talk about the uh, play along 
music.com where where you offer i guess guitar lessons and and you talk about that but let me just get here to to robin zander uh you cover (laughs) the moves a california man of course made very popular by cheap trick and you have robin zander on it now let me explain something to folks first you don't just love (laughs) cheap trick you love cheap trick i remember there was one time uh you had you were at a slash show uh was it a slash show or alice cooper show anyway I, i met you backstage years and years ago and i had a sharpie that said cheap trick on it and i said can you sign my cd and you said yes of course and then you saw the sharpie and you said yeah but i gotta keep this <laughs> i gotta keep the sharpie and you did and just because it said cheap trick on it so that's like a, a fan fan kind of thing um what was it yeah. like to have yeah right i mean well, as as long as those guys don't know it but i think they know it <laughs> <laughs> they come up on stage with us uh so many times rick and robin we actually were able to tour with cheap trick uh a, a few years back they've always been the most uh I don't know, the quintessential rock stars is what I call them. And uh, Robin Zander's voice is rock and roll. I, uh, I, I, I'll just say it because I grew up listening to those Cheap Trick albums and I grew up having their posters on my wall. I said, someday I want to be like that. And I remember one of our first conversations, I said, I used we used to imagine, you know, I used to fantasize about saying, hey, man, someday Cheap Trick's going to play on my album. And here we are having that conversation. How many years later, where I can say, yes, Robin guest vocaled on California Man, which is a cover of a cover. It was made famous for me by Cheap Trick, but originally from The Move. And uh, Cheap Trick put it out on that album, Heaven Tonight. The rendition that I did, I think, is maybe just an updated, a little bit more kick-ass in the sense that... It's the arrangement hasn't changed, but maybe the guitar tone's a little heavier. Um, obviously, Robin's voice helped me out to sing it, and um, we got some great other special guests on that song. So you you figure Robin sang his tracks in Florida. Teddy Zigzag, who actually played with Chuck Berry and he also played with Guns N' Roses, he laid down the piano tracks in Los Angeles, and then we had seven. Adenopolis here in Sweden dropped the drums here. So it was basically recorded, you know, in three different places, put together here in Sweden. And the end result is something I'm really proud of. And it's really great. So I was going to ask if you if you had learned or noticed anything from Robin in the studio, but since he did it somewhere else, see, that's the thing about recording these days. In, in, in the 70s, it was like, oh, we have studio stories. We were all in a room together. And now it's like, no, I sent him an MP3 and he, right? It's a whole different You want to hear a dirty little secret? Yeah. I'll tell you a little dirty secret about yeah. this album. Uh, we recorded most of the album here in um, Purple Skull Studios in uh, Stockholm, Sweden, but we also recorded some of the tracks in hotel rooms all across America and Canada while we were on tour with Alice Cooper because Tommy Hendrickson is producing three of the tracks on the album, and I'll be honest with you, a couple of those days off, we went in and laid down pretty much the basic tracks for you know the guitars, the lead vocals, what ended up ending up on the album were some of those tracks that we, that we basically laid down in hotel rooms. So I guess you could say we recorded the album at the Sheraton studios room two twenty two or something like that. And, <laughs> Straight uh, from the best Western. 
Yeah, yes. fact, <laughs> talk to me about that process, though. Does that change anything for you? Because I know you just take a guitar and you can plug it into the computer and you can get the sounds and so. But does that change anything for you as an artist to not have that vibe, not have that studio thing and just really – and we say it jokingly, but it's not jokingly. You, you're in room 222 at the Best Western. I mean – you right. know what? Honestly, honestly, I've been one of those lucky guys that's been able to make records and record records from two inch, big old two inch tape, you know, Tascam tape to uh, ADATs and those type of digital tape when it first came out, then doing just solely on digital and then doing hybrids of each. So I've been able to record in a bunch of different situations over the years with a bunch of really talented producers. And at the end of the day, what's most important is the energy and the vibe you feel the moment you're recording. Because, you know, at that moment, when you're inspired, it doesn't matter if you're in a hotel room or in the most expensive studio in Los Angeles, you need to deliver. And that because because that performance is going to be what ultimately lasts forever. And I got to tell you, I give so much credit to the producers on this album uh, for getting the most out of my voice and getting the most out of the guitars. And like I said, the guitars are a hybrid of live amps. There's some plug-in amps. There's some modeled amps. And there's my trusty Marshall amps. So, and of course, you know, I tried to play the right guitar for the right song. So there's a ton of different guitars on it. Like I said, I've never played this much guitar on any album that I've ever played on. Um, and definitely, I'm. this is the one time where the producers were asking for more guitar and I wasn't demanding it. <laughs> What? What? More guitar? Uh, the other thing that I find remarkable is that you do have Glenn Sobel uh, uh, play on a few tracks. You've got Tommy producing it. Uh, talk to me about this Alice Cooper group because this band with Nita, with Tommy, it really is one of the best bands I've seen live. The shows are tight. Everything. Everybody seems to be having a good time when you're when you're around the crew. Everybody's laughing and every. Just talk to me about this band, and, and it's more than a band, right? I mean, it's almost like a family at this point. It's become a family. i got to be honest with you. This lineup, this particular lineup uh, that we have is, I think, the longest-standing touring band that Alice has had since the original band. You know, I, I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. This is definitely a unit, and we rock as a unit, and when we're having a good time on stage, we're having a good time. It's very rarely that we don't have a good time on stage because everybody knows their role and they know what they bring to the table. And at the, to be honest with you, Mitch, everybody in this band knows whose name's on the marquee and we always take from the top. And we look at him and we look at his energy. We look at Alice's drive and we say, look, if he's going to be a 70-year-old guy rocking and rolling the the pants off of any other lead singer out there, we got to be the most kick-ass band that we can be to give the best representation of these songs. Because, look, man, at the end of the day, Alice Cooper has all those songs. You know, he, I'm, I'm promoting an album with 10 songs on it that I'm really close to, I really believe in, and I'm happy if one or two of them get played, you know, more than you know a if few they 
if they resonate with with the fans. Yes, and, I, I'm I'm happy of one or two or three songs, even though I love all ten of them. But think of how many songs and how many albums and what a career this guy has had. That's why I think the band gives it our all because we give it for him, and it's reciprocated from the fans too because we have. Seriously, the best fans in the world. Some of the most hardcore, dedicated fans. People talk a lot about KISS fans, and, and of course, they are dedicated to the KISS Army. You'd never mess with the KISS Army. But the Alice Cooper sick things, they are right there with them. I'm telling you. Oh, and I fully agree. And here's my fear of the Alice Cooper band. Because Nita is so great at what she does, because you're so great at what you do, and Tommy, of course, has done um, solo albums and, and producing. I wake up every day going, oh, my God, are, are they going to go off? And there's because I just don't want this band to break up because the Alice Cooper shows with these with this team and Glenn is just it's like, oh, please, please. Get, like, don't get so famous, Nita. Stop it. <laughs> no, no, no. I'll tell you. I'll tell you from my, you know, this is obviously coming right. from me, but it is my hope that this lineup and this band rides with Alice into the sunset. Yep. You know, I'm, we, we take that. Alice off because I just think he deserves everything, the legacy, preserve the legacy that he's made for over all these years that he's created. I want to be there when he says, you know what? It, this is, uh, this is, this is it. But I'll tell you, I'll be honest, Alice shows no signs of slowing down. And whenever I talk to him and even hint at it, he goes, are you kidding me? I'm on the road till whenever. Yeah. And by the way, we're, we're, we're not mentioning Chuck. We can't forget Chuck. Of course he's Chuck Garrick. Yeah. You can't a forget Chuck, Chuck. We, did, we and, just and did Chuck, forget him course, though, but how could we do that? <laughs> no, 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 no. Chuck's got Bisto Blanco. Yep. Tommy's got his solo stuff. I'm just putting out my solo stuff. Nita's putting out her solo stuff. Glenn Sobel is always soloing. So, <laughs> um, so at the same time, everybody's got musical projects, but we all know that our sort of, dedication and, and, and our priority is right. is being in the Alice Cooper band. And we, and trust me, we are thankful for that. Let me quickly change the topic or, or, or focus on another part of this. You did those shows in uh, Europe that included Glenn, uh, not Glenn, uh, Michael Bruce, uh, Dennis, yeah. Neil, um, and of course, uh, make Glenn rest in peace. I didn't mean any disrespect there. Um, Talk to me about those shows and, 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 you know, will there be future shows where they come back and, and play with you? And what was it like for you? Because here you are, you know the legacy, you bought those records, you loved those records, and now you've got... That's how I discovered who, Alice Cooper. Right. Yeah. And you've got these guys That's standing it. next to you going, hey, let's trade a lick. I mean, just talk to me about <laughs> sort of the fan side and your side and what was it like to have I'll them? tell you... Being able to be a part of that, to be able to play Glenn's parts and sort of be that guy, that other member and in the band that was laying down the chords, dropping a solo here and there, and just letting the three original um, the the three original guys come back with Alice and just become that band was surreal for me, as well as it was so satisfying to see the joy on Michael Bruce's face when he break into, you know, the school's out riff. Cause hell, he wrote that riff. He deserves to play that in front of, of, uh, uh, an arena. 
He does, and he did. And and just between the way that they all play together, I, I told him, somebody asked me, <laughs> and there's here comes your soundbite, what was it like playing with the Alice Cooper, the original Alice Cooper band? I said, it was like being in a totally different band than the touring band. Because when the touring band would play the songs, we play it our way after this many years of being together. And then when the original band would play the, the, the songs, they'd play it the way they recorded it. You know, there was no, uh, they didn't have to emulate the way, oh, I wonder what the way they were thinking when they played, because they wrote it, they recorded it, they played it the same way. And they sounded like, Alice sounded like a different lead singer when he was singing with those original guys. That's actually interesting. Yeah. I guess, yeah, when when you hear a sort of a different swing behind you or a different sort of groove, you, you, you I guess you adapt vocally. Um you ad- he adapts – you know what? Not just adapting vocally. He adapted his personality. Right. Because you have to understand that he came up with these guys. So it wasn't so much like, you know, he had – Alice hired us and we became his band and we, we back him up and support him every way we can. He – wrote, created, and sort of went through the ups and downs, you know, the empty rooms, the packed houses with these guys. So there was a whole different sort of personality that he had with them as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Just real quick, uh, we've talked about this before, but there was a point where you were touring with Alice and you just said, no mas, I, I need a break. Uh, talk to me just quickly about taking that break and and, you know, recharging the batteries and all that, and then Coming back, and I guess it was 2012, somewhere around there. Yeah, I got the call back in 2012. I will. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, right? But I will give credit completely to Eddie Ojeda from Twisted Sister for helping me make that decision of staying uh, in Sweden at that time. We had just moved to Sweden, my family, and watching being able to have that time those years to those formative years for my two kids to watch them grow up and actually not be away eight months or nine months out of the year like we were doing back then and just be home and even though i was doing stuff around europe and playing around europe i kept stuff close to home and was able to watch these two little kids that i have grow up and to be like big kids now but like i said in 2000 what is it 2005 right like right, right. around that time right. we toured with twisted sister and eddie ojeda uh we, we we got to be pals and friends and he said look he had an 18 year old daughter at the time he said look if i could do one thing i would not miss my daughter growing up because for so many of those years we were on tour and i wouldn't want to miss those years if you have that opportunity maybe it's a good thing to take it. And I thought and that resonated with me in the back of my head. And I said, well, like, I, I hope I have that opportunity. I think I have that opportunity. If it's, if I'm meant to come back someday, hopefully I will, because I feel that I've never, you know, I've never tried to burn any bridges. I've always tried to, you know, work well within, with, within the band and, you know, come 2012, I got that call back to say, hey, 
there's an, there's an opening. Uh, Steve Hunter is, is not going to do this next tour. Would you be willing to it? And I said, well, thank you, Steve. I mean, I'm, I wish you well on his solo thing that he did. And I, and I was able to come back and we've been touring every year since then. So whenever well, I see Steve Hunter, I have to, I thank him as well. So I thank Steve Hunter. I thank Eddie Ojeda. I don't know who else should I thank. Should I thank you, Mitch? Yes. Did you get me back? Yes. <laughs> Yes, you did. I, you I, I I tweeted often. Bring back Ryan. I, I had a hashtag actually. It was it was it was it was fascinating. But uh, but, but was, was I don't even a... think there were hashtags back then, Mitch. <laughs> it was just called a pound sign. It was yeah. never a hashtag. <laughs> let me let me live in my fantasy. Uh, no, but. Uh... <laughs> Remember no, when hashtags were just pound signs? Yes. Or the thing we used to call it the tic tac toe sign. The tic tac toe yeah. sign. Uh, yeah, I remember the early phones of if you want to talk to the whatever finance department, hit the pound key. And now it's like hit the hashtags. Like, what are we talking about? Yeah. But uh, but talk to me about that decision. So Steve leaves, you get the call. Was it a a a heart wrenching decision where you said, okay, I got to choose, but well, not choose, but that's a bad word. But it's like okay. I've got to readjust my family sort of dynamic and let's, and I'll go do this. Or was it like, yeah, I'm ready. Everything at home is nice and stable. It's the perfect, I mean, what, what was it? Difficult? I think it was the, it was it, the call came at the right time and it couldn't have been more of a no brainer for me. And I think when I explained it to my kids, they were happy because all they've ever known is their dad being a guitar player and being a musician and, when I told him about the opportunity that would basically be ahead of us, and I think that year was the year that we uh, we toured with Iron Maiden, they were like, "Great, Dad, do what you do," because that because that's all they've ever known me as is that you know maybe that oddball father at the school meetings that comes in with you know the messed up hair and the and the funny beanie and you know maybe too much nail polish on but i'm still that oddball father that plays music but at the end of the day does what he loves to do for a living and it all goes back to that imagine your reality of how i titled entitled this album i tell my kids two things i say enjoy the ride the ride being life enjoy basically your life and the whole process of what you do and imagine your reality you have to imagine something and then put your imagination into action before you achieve that goal you know so imagine yourself already having achieved that goal but then do something every single day that goes towards that goal and basically i guess that phone call was another step of the next goal i wanted to achieve which is getting back out on the road and getting able to play for all these crazy yeah. cooper fanatics that are i'm telling you they're the reasons why we still have jobs is our, is our hardcore Alice Cooper fans. And, and I thank them and I try to be as respectful and cool as, with them at every show that I can. We, we all try to meet them. Everybody's really. Well, you do, you do those, uh, the rock and roll parking lots. It, it, it's very rare. In fact, it's basically unheard of that you need and others will go stand in the masses and come and take pictures with people in the middle of arenas and stuff. And it's just like, wow. Okay. That's kind of yep. cool. In fact, that's very. Well, sometimes cool. we are literally. Sometimes we are literally, literally go into the parking lot and <laughs> start shaking hands and thanking the people that came to the show because they deserve it. They're the ones that keep us employed, and they're the ones that hopefully, you know, two, three, five, however many more years, you know, 
Alice decides on touring, those are the ones that are going to keep showing up. And they're the ones that support all our other endeavors that we do, such as this album that I'm promoting right now. Yeah, and I, and I really can't wait to to get the the physical copy. I need physical. I'm not a digital dude. Um, yeah, the physical is going to be great. I'm t- well, I'm a tangible guy too. Everybody wants, you know. We live in a world of digital, but I we were talking before the interview started. We talk about being an analog guy, and you know I've been lucky enough to record records, you know, on analog. The, the, what I think this album comes to life is that it is being pressed on vinyl you know, four different colors of vinyl with an interactive packaging. You know, our, our record label, Bellyache Records, that. is doing a great job with with the packaging of that. And Cargo Records is releasing the same sort of interactive uh, cover with the CD. So the, you're, you know, a lot of people think that old school is CD now, where I think old school is vinyl. But a lot of new kids think of vinyl as the new thing. <laughs> so I, I'm not, I'm not sure where, what, what you consider old school or new school. I just know that we have tangible products and they're waiting for you. If you want it, if you want them. Yeah. I, I've yeah. always been a, a CD guy. I mean, I grew up on albums and then it was cassettes and the minute I was able to throw them out and I know people say, Oh, you throw out your vinyl. Yeah. And I got to CDs. My life changed. It was like, Oh, convenience, convenience. Thank you. Um, Playalongmusic.com forward slash Ryan dash Roxy. Uh, explain. Uh, just just go playalongmusic.com and then you'll 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 find you know, it. or just search you'll search Ryan Roxy or if you just go to ryanroxy.com, there's a link on there. Okay. Uh, the thing is, it's my mission now to get as many people to play guitar as possible not just listen to guitar driven music which i hope they'll do with this new album and all the other bands that are coming out with guitars on them but i really want them to get that guitar in their hands and start playing it because like i said earlier i want to move guitar a little bit more into the forefront and the center of the conversation and by doing these very simple lessons very uh, teaching someone their power chords, their first position chords, uh, very simple scales. Within like two or three weeks, they can, they're learning songs, they're learning how to um, construct a solo. And also one of the things I'm doing for this next album is I'm doing an interactive playback video for each song that's on the album. So if someone wants to learn and play along with, with my new album coming out, you just go to that site and I'll have an easy to follow, uh, play along interactive video for it. It, Yeah. And by the way, if you go to play along music, you'll see that that you have uh, a bunch of videos up there and they go from, you know, uh, playing along to another one bites the dust to electric tuning to Peter Gunn, to the name of strings. I mean, you, you really sort of break it down. I, I, it's, it's all the basic stuff that you, I, that right. I feel someone would have taught me and the, the way I teach it. Now, wait, maybe another guitar player teaches those same basic things a different way. And that's cool. But someone wants to learn from that. We have that on the side as well, but I can, I teach the guitar the way I would want to have been taught when I was learning as well. I, I I don't make it as complicated, I think, as some teachers make it because I want the guitar to be simple. I want you to learn it and then I want you to tell a friend about it so that they'll want to play guitar as well. Because at the end of the day, I want our rock stars to be wearing, you know, guitars 
strapped down low, fashionable clothing, and you just keep those loud abrasive guitars in the mix. It's okay. You can have a turntable. You can have headphones, but but let's make the rock star still with a guitar in his hand. How about that? That's good. And what I've always found fascinating about you personally is you've always had this um, you're, 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 you're a technophile. You've always been on the cutting edge of, of technology. I remember years and years ago at the turn of the millennium, you were like, podcasts, man, they're going to, and nobody knew what the hell they were. And, and then, <laughs> and then you were backstage in Quebec city and you were FaceTiming or Skyping or whatever it was back in the day with your kids. And I was like, Wow. Okay. Like you were always, you know, and so, and you've always had this thing about being a connection with the fans from the rock and roll parking lot to this. Um, just talk to me a bit, just real quick about your fascination with new technologies and always getting to the new thing and being on, on the cutting edge. Well, I appreciate that. Then you'll really appreciate here in Sweden, my new uh, dial up modem that I got. Have you heard about those? No, those are fantastic. <laughs> and, 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 and yes, we, we can exchange a, uh, AOL Messenger messages. <laughs> no, I, I'm always looking for some new way to connect with people because I figure when I was a little kid, all I wanted to do was make records and send them out to as many people as you could all across the world for I didn't want to make it as complicated as like a record company with distribution and all that kind of stuff. And the silly thing is that nowadays a kid that was in my position learning guitar can sit in his room, make a studio quality album with equipment that's superior to what the Beatles had for when they recorded and send it out all over the world on their laptop. And they have their own distribution recording studio in their parents' basement so i right. mean i love that i love the technology that, that that that's taken place but i'm always pushing forward and i love the interactivity now with uh i know that snapchat just basically got multiple uh person uh video chat so that means when we do our uh rock and roll parking lots we can not only distribute our parking lot out to the the public we can we can take it live and have people from all over the world chime in and be in on the parking lot as well so there's all these sort of new you know every single year there's something that's bringing us hopefully closer as much as the as much as the internet has taken the sort of um because everyone wants to talk about how the internet has taken the uh, mystery out of the band. It's taken that sort of mystique uh, out of rock and roll. But what it, but what I always, I look at that and go, yeah, well, fine. That's true. But also what it does is connect the fan personally to his favorite, his favorite rock and roller. And all of a sudden you have a connection to that guy that's the poster on your wall that you never did, which could even inspire you more than you did when, you know, when you didn't have it. Cause I, when I was growing up, I had to look through 
circus magazine to find, you know, multiple circus magazines or metal edge magazines to find one article on cheap trick. Whereas nowadays, you know, you go up there and you can pretty much find, you know, Rick Nielsen's dentist online if you want to. So, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, um, it, it is fascinating and it, it's, it, it creates an engagement, you know, we have to use the uh, business term, but it creates an, an engagement with the audience that's just fascinating. And, but it must put a little bit of pressure on you because in a sense, you can never have a bad day because all of a sudden it'll be all over the internet. Oh, Ryan's a, it's like, no, no, Ryan had a bad Monday morning. Leave me alone. I mean, right? There, there is that. No, I, I think it's fine to have a bad day and it's, it's fine if you really want to. I just don't think people are that, I think people get a little too into like what they're posting. So like if they have a toothache, they, they go out and, and tweet about it. I don't think, <laughs> I don't try to, to, to give that information out. I just try to sometimes if something cool is that I find cool or inspiring is, is out there, I'll post about it. Or if there's something coming up with a live show or something to do with the, obviously this new record, I'll post it up. Or if I think if someone sends in a really cool shot of, of me and Coop or me and Chuck on stage, right. I'll post it up. And I think that's what they want. I think sometimes when you start posting about, you know, you had a Dorito chip and a uh, diet Coke for, so the Roxy, you know, your the Roxy breakfast blog is not coming up. <laughs> No. Not anytime soon. I and honestly, I, I I'm trying to shy more and more away from that. Um, like I said, I I don't ever want to tweet that I have a toothache. Because and I think Thank you're God. allowed to. I think you're allowed to. I think people do. You know, they they have to see people that they look up to or are inspired by as humans as well. Not everybody's perfect, right? I by agree. any stretch of the means. But I'm. You don't have to post about it. Let me let me get to the uh, the real tough questions. Um, Dream Police or Heaven uh -oh. Tonight? <laughs> you're the famous guy on that these days, man. You're, you're <laughs> this or that, so, salt or pepper. Right. <laughs> Why can't you have both? <laughs> you know, <laughs> does everyone say that salt or pepper, and you just say sriracha? <laughs> All right. People, so which one do people, you say? People always write that uh, write to me, and they'll say it's apples and oranges, and I go, yeah, it's two fruits. You. <laughs> <laughs> So which one was your first question? G Dream Police or? Heaven Tonight. Well, let me see. I'd have to go with Heaven Tonight because, you know, it did have California Man on it. But it had more than that, maybe the most perfect rock song ever written as far as a uh, the way it was constructed. I think Surrender is one of the best constructed rock songs of our time. And I've been trying to rip it off ever since. <laughs> ever since I, the first time I heard it. I think there's two songs that I think have are great, great constructed songs. Surrender by Cheap Trick is one. And um, the other is um, um, SOS by ABBA. SOS by ABBA is, is a great song. Yeah. And by the way, you're wrong. The answer is actually Alvita Zane. That's the best uh, written song ever. <laughs> but, but a great. Yeah, well, eh? uh, how many times can you say goodbye? Yeah, right. I know. But such a great song. But uh, Cheap Trick. I, I love Cheap Trick. I, I will readily admit publicly that I have a 400-song Cheap Trick playlist in my phone that I keep there at all times. It is, it is uh, borderline nutty, but... 
That's great. I think I can actually – well, here's how crazy it was for us on this last album uh, when we were constructing the, the playlist. We actually put California Man third because that's where it appeared on uh, the Cheap Trick record, Heaven Tonight. Oh, yeah. Okay, that, that's a whole – Am, I, am I right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> third, third song, side one. That's uh yeah. There you go. Yeah. So there you go. And uh and then well, we'll finish with this then. Uh cheap trick or in color. First record or second record? Yeah. Um I know little I know little inside scoop. I do. Which is? Uh both <laughs> were recorded. Both were recorded in 1977. Both were recorded by Jack Douglas. Jack Douglas recorded and mixed the first record. And then the second record was mixed by Tom Weirman. And I only know this because the words came out of Jack Douglas's mouth that he had recorded the tracks for In Color as well. So you could say that they're both one big long record, but, and because they were both recorded and I believe released in 1977. But I mean, there's a definite pop, um, Flair. Tendency, yeah. flair that that Tom Weirman brought out in the mixes, that that indie, you know, I would say I would say that Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick, you can look at it as more of an indie rock album, Correct. whereas In Color, more of a pop rock album and and straight ahead rock and roll album. You know, all you have to do is listen to the two different versions of. I want you to want me. The one that's on In Color and then the one that's on Live at Budokan. And you could see the difference between the live band and the studio band. That's absolutely true. And uh, not that anybody cares, but I think I might go with In Color just because big eyes, down, you're all talk, clock strikes 10, southern girls. I mean, but hey, oh. he's a whore. Oh, yeah. Andy, tax yeah. man. Oh, Mandicello. You know? Cry, cry, cry. Oh, yeah. How did this turn in from That's me a... trying to promote my solo album to a cheap trick sort of <laughs> cheap trick fest? Well, because it's it's no, but uh, you, you, there is there is sort of that that ethos uh, in your solo album of that cheap trick mentality because they they always had these big songs, big choruses, big hooks. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's part of what, what, what we like and what we do. And Hey, there you go. Yeah. Hey, I, I wear, I wear that proudly when everyone ever says, Hey, you, you, your band sounds a little like cheap trick. I'd be like, hell yes, it does. Those were the guys, those were the posters on my wall. Those were the guys that I wanted to emulate as a kid. Yep. And I've, I've strived really hard over the years to write, you know, Good quality rock and roll, melodic, catchy, hooky, guitar-driven songs. So, if that's if that's what it takes to do it, I yep. proudly wear that and yep. proudly say yes. Yeah, I I agree. And of course, uh, uh, back in 2013, you released the Roxy Box, which was a collection of pretty much everything you had done uh, in a non slash non Cooper environment and. Yeah, if that's still out there, folks, you got to go. You got to pick that up. It is such a great. You can box. check it out right now. It's it's out. It's out on Spotify. It's out on iTunes. It's out on all the digital displays. And you can always pick it up at a live show. Uh, we've got copies. Or like again, go to the uh, RyanRoxy.com. The store's on there. I think there's a few copies of that left as well. So, like I said, I, I'm as I'm as approachable 
as I would say, Alice Cooper is because anyone that knows Alice Cooper knows how approachable he is with his fans. And I've always tried to be that, that sort of dichotomy of a personality. I want to be on stage as reckless and dangerous as possible, but off stage as humble as I can be and as approachable because I want the same, any kid that comes up to me that, that, that thinks they want to do this for a living, I want them to be able to feel comfortable. Ask me, how did you get to where you were? You know, cause I want to do the same thing and I'll tell them, you know, a lot of people say right place at the right time. That's true. You have to be at the right place at the right time, but you have no idea how many wrong places at wrong times you have to be there as well just to get to that point and get that opportunity. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. And uh, by the way, the Roxy Box, 70 songs and includes, of course, my favorite track, Smell My Finger. Which, uh, <laughs> well, you know, it is, a, it is an institution. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, always, a, always a pleasure and uh, very much looking forward to, to seeing you on the road and seeing, uh, seeing Cooper again which is always great. And that band, holy mackerel, that band, Chuck, Nita, Glenn, Tommy, you, Alice, of course. Wow. Just wow. Thanks for the chat, Mitch. It's always a pleasure. And hopefully we'll be able to talk uh, before the year is out and we'll, we'll catch up and see how the album is done. And uh, if we sell a few copies, I'm sure I'll be thanking you again, all your <laughs> listeners. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for, if we don't, being... I'll, if we don't, we can always just sit back and talk about cheap trick again. Yeah, we'll do an entire um, we'll, we'll do an entire cheap trick uh, discography discussion for an hour. That'll be fun. Uh, anyway, uh, tack as they say in Dan Denmark and I guess Sweden too. They go tack. So thank you. Taxa hemsmiket. Yeah, tack skadu hey. That's what I always used to say in Denmark. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. <laughs> you say tack some fun. That means thanks like shit, which I guess <laughs> means something here. Yeah, tack some fun. Tuck some fun. <laughs> eh, smell my finger. Whatever. It's <laughs> <laughs> They're all love songs. <laughs> They're all exactly. Uh, merci, merci, monsieur, as we say in Montreal, and uh, we will. How see about you this, on Mitch? Yes. Auf Wiedersehen. Au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen. Sayonara. Uh, yeah. Bye bye. <laughs> bye bye. Thank you, sir. Have a good one. Thanks, Mitch. Have a good one, man. Take Cheers. care, guys. Talk to you soon. Bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk. And there you have it, folks, my interview with Ryan Roxy, guitarist, of course, for Alice Cooper. And that was the first time, the first time I have ever, ever used FaceTime to record an interview. And wow, that was uh, the new technology. It, it's just bringing you the, the stars whichever way we can get it done. Now, speaking of stars and getting people and stuff, uh, Sully Erna of Godsmack is the next guest. We talk about their new album, When Legends Rise. And I have to say, on this album, there is a song called Under Your Scars. It is a powerful, powerful song. Probably one of the best songs I've heard in the last five years. It is just, it's perfect. It just gets to you and it, it squeezes your heart and it, it, it takes you. Anyway, just wonderful song. Anyway, episode is long. I'm getting into this habit of making long episodes. I, I, stuff it in, you know. I, I'm like the stuffing in a turkey. So here we are. Without further ado, one, the only, from Godsmack, new album, When Legends Rise, vocalist, 
Sully Erna. We are speaking with Godsmack's Sully Erna. The new album is When Legends Rise. Sully, pleasure to speak with you. It's been it's been a while. The last time was for Hometown Life, which was your solo album. But it's nice to hear about new Godsmack music. Thank you. Nice to be back. Yes. <laughs> and so l- let me get started here. There is a song on this album called Under Your Scars, which is easily... Huh? the best song I've heard this year and probably the best song I've heard in the last five years. And it, it, it wow. is reminiscent of, you know, Unforgiven by Metallica or, or November Rain. It's just got this big epicness, if that's a word, to it. Talk to me about that song first and then let's let's get into the album. Well, it's it's interesting to me that you even picked that one out out of all of them. But because um, it happens to be, you know, one of my favorites lyrically um, because of the meaning behind it. Um, but I also really am curious to see how the fan base is going to accept us introducing our first traditional ballad into the Godsmack catalog, you know, because it really is kind of set up like a evolving kind of epic ballad, like a dream on or a November rain um, where, you know, continuously grows until it's, you know, really strong at the end. Um, but lyrically, it's one of those you know songs that I just really gravitated towards because I think uh, it hits home for me. It hits home for a lot of people. Um, you know, the song is about just being uh, recognizing someone coming into your life that could be a really positive person for you, but because of the baggage and the scars that we carry from past relationships, sometimes when little things surface and we see one little red flag go up, the first thing we do is kick them out or push them away. Um, and this is kind of more about an understanding where you're trying to tell the other person that, listen, you know, it's okay that, you know, you have these scars. I'm willing to live with them as long as you're willing to live with mine. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it's a pretty special song. Oh, it's great. I mean, I, I've had a chance to hear, to hear the album, and it's the one song that I, just before the interview, I think I listened to it four times consecutively. It just really... Wow. It is great. And, you know, you mentioned that you think the fans, you you know, you're curious about how they're going to react to it. But I mean, when Metallica stepped out and did Fade to Black, it certainly was very different to what they were doing. And the fans obviously accepted that. I don't think the fans will will say anything but, wow, this is a great song, quite frankly. So it's interesting well, even that you, nothing, you know, nothing else matters too. they even took another step forward into that and went really, you know, that was a real ballad, um, you know, and I thought about those things too. Even, even Aerosmith, I mean, they've always been a rock band and it's a little bit different of a texture than comparing to Metallica or whatever, but, um, but you know, they, they made a big transformation, you know, back in the day when you remember they came out with the done with mirrors record. And then from there went into permanent vacation and pump and all that stuff before that, they were like a real acid rock kind of band. Don't you think like yeah, absolutely. And toys in the attic and, you know, it was a pretty big change for them as well. So Listen, the band's growing, you know, we're evolving and we, we want to evolve with the music. We want the fans to evolve with us and we're just not going to write the same record every time. So, yeah. you know, hopefully they'll come along for the journey. I think they will. And and by the way, since you mentioned Done With Mirrors, that is one of the most misunderstoods in the Aerosmith catalog. It is such a brilliant song. My mm. fist, your face. Anyway, um, so talk to me about the this evolving sound because you, you were, were always sort of pegged as you know you're the heavy metal band you even open for metallica but this is uh, is this sort of your black album in a sense where you're just sort of pushing the boundaries and saying hey you know what we're going to stretch out musically and not just get pigeonholed into doing these three notes and these three sort of drum fills 
I, I hope so. You know, the, I mean, uh, yeah, I, it's hard to say, you know, this, it, 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 every artist seems to think that their, you know, their newest record is going to be the best record yet. Um, I've learned how to detach myself over the years emotionally from my music. And because what I've found my strength lies within is in producing and arrangements and composing. Um, and so now I've been able to look at songs from a distance, from more of a fan point of view or a producing point of view. Um, and I got to tell you, you know, even though I look at that now and I'm not as emotionally attached as I used to be to my art, I, I really do feel like this, this is probably the best record that we've written since our first album. It's certainly the most unique and, um, and it's, it's just, it's, it's powerfully filled with melodies and, and big, you know, hooky riffs that I think, you know, I, I would be very surprised if rock fans didn't like this record. I mean, it just seems like it has everything it needs to be successful. So whether or not that comes to fruition is beyond me. You know, I thought in the past I wrote the best song ever and it didn't do anything. So it's up to the public once this comes out. Yeah. And it'll be great. Now you of course had hometown life. And I also interviewed you when you did Avalon how did writing for those solo albums differ than doing a Godsmack album? And what did you sort of take into this Godsmack writing session from having done it alone, really as a solo kind of thing? Well, can, you, can you repeat that question? I'm not sure I quite understood what you were saying. Well, you know, you, when you did Hometown Life and you did Avalon and we spoke back then, you had talked about doing very, very personal music and stuff that was sort of different than Godsmack. Now you're coming back to Godsmack. Yeah. Of course, there was a thousand HP, but you are. Uh, how did writing for your solo album sort of affect, if it did at all, writing for the new Godsmack album? Oh, oh writing for the new Godsmack. Okay, I got right. it. I think, especially for this, this new record, I think it had a tremendous effect on the approach of how I wanted to write this record because... It, it actually crossed my mind several times as the band, you know, was speaking to me. They actually came and asked me if I, I would write this record. Um, and they just, and I asked them why, you know, I, you know, I thought in the past they wanted this door open to, to be able to write with me and whatever. Um, and, you know, although they, they do and they appreciate it and they worked on some stuff and we worked on stuff together. I worked on stuff by myself and I worked on some stuff with some outside writers on this record. I, you know, I kind of stretched out quite a bit. Um, but it's because they just said we always, they always felt we did our best when I was kind of in control of the vision. And, um, and so the first thing I thought of actually was why wouldn't I take this approach? It works so great. And I learned so much about working with outside writers, like the guys in my solo band aren't in Godsmack and they come from jazz backgrounds and blues backgrounds and classical backgrounds and, um, and that's, that music came out really unique and had just a little bit of a twist to it, that stuff that I had never heard before. And I wanted to take that same approach with Godsmack and just see if I worked with somebody who was a pop writer or a country writer or R and B guy or whatever it was, a punk, you know, punk pop or whatever. I was just curious to see what other people thought we could sound like and present me with some music so I could think outside the box. And, and that's why I feel like this record is a little bit more special than some of the other records that we've done in the past. Yeah, now, now the last album, 1000 HP, was of course very successful, and you had worked with Dave uh, Fortman uh, producing. Um, why not go back to, to that formula? You, you brought in Eric Ron, and, and I've heard the album, he's done a fantastic job. Um, why not sort of stick with what worked, and why sort of take that risk to bring Eric in? Well, 
again, you know, it just started as a writing session. I, I met with Eric for the first time to just write with, and we stumbled onto a pretty big song pretty quickly, which was the song Bulletproof that became the first single. Um, and it came very naturally, very quickly. And, you know, I went and worked with some other people, spent some time by myself. And then I was like, you know what, I'm going to hit this kid again because I want to see if lightning can strike twice or if this was just a fluke thing that happened. And, you know, I went back and we hit another pretty, pretty big song, which was called Take It to the Edge. Um, and it just made me realize that not only, you know, this kid has some talent with, you know, with a head for melody and stuff like that. But what impressed me the most was the demos he was presenting me of these songs we were writing sounded really sonically solid. They were great. And I was like, wow, I bet you this kid could really make this record sound sonically tight. And, and so I gave him an opportunity. I asked him if he wanted to produce the record with me. And of course, you know, he, he jumped on it and, and the rest is history. But, um, yeah, it was just, you know, it's all been trial and error. For, for most albums, you have sort of these double production credits, you, you and, and, and the other guy, you and the other guy. Uh, talk to me about that and having your hand in the production and not sort of stepping back wholly and saying, okay, this is your baby, we will follow your vision, and you just sort of tell us what to do. Why is it sort of important for you to be involved on that level and not just sort of step back and say, okay, take the ball and run with it. Well, who's going to take the ball and run with it? Well, uh, Eric or David or, or any of the other guys. Uh, on the production side of it? Yeah. Oh, I see. Well, no, I don't think that's ever going to happen in my world. <laughs> I am just, um, um, I'm too much of a control freak to begin with when it comes to, you know, the, the art that I want to make. I, you know, here's the thing. It's not even control. It's that you have a vision and you have a sound and it's in your head. And the challenge is to try to get it out onto a tape because that's the always the tricky part. And, you know, trying to find that sound and those tones and those frequencies is, is, is a lot of work because it's, I wish they would come up with a device where you could just wire your brain and it would just translate onto a tape recorder. That would be amazing because that would probably have the sickest music and the best sounding records ever. But you know, unfortunately, I'm at the mercy of someone else twisting knobs. The other thing is, um, I'm not really great at um, at turning knobs. Like, right. uh, I'm not a tech guy. So, you know, I know what I want to hear, and I can verbalize that, but I can't get behind a board and really work with compressors and EQs and this, that, and the other thing to be able to know, you know, I know enough about it, but I don't know it that well to be able to just do it. So, you know, I think it's... it's I think having a good team around you is really important. I think when you have really good quality sound guys and engineers and they're working with an artist that knows what his vision is and what he wants, I think that's when you win in the end. Yeah. Um, Ticket to Rock. Uh, You are touring, of course, this summer with Shinedown, part of this Ticket to Rock program where fans can get three shows for 59 bucks, four shows for 69 bucks. To me, that is absolutely fantastic because I've I've seen, you know, I saw my first concert for eight bucks, and now they're like three hundred bucks for for like Bon Jovi mm-hmm. recently. Uh, we've gotten to gouging, and fans are are being left out. Um, so kudos to you for being part of this program. But explain this program and why it's important for for Godsmack to be involved with Shine Down and of course Five Finger Death Punch and Avenged Sevenfold and all the other bands that are part of it, and just say, hey, fans. We're here for you. 
Well, you know, we're fans. I think that's my answer anyways. I think we're just all fans. I know Brent is, you know, me and him spend a lot of time on the phone. We've been working hard on trying to develop a really great visual show for the fans between both acts, uh, you know, something that can coexist within each other in the same stage and still give, uh, you know, each band a different look and a different show for the audience. Um, but in general, you know, it's, it's, it's tough when you start, I, but then again, you know, you're talking about comparing to Bon Jovi and stuff like that. It's an older audience now. So you're right. talking about, you know, catering to people that are already have careers and, and, you know, pretty, pretty set in their own ways with their own homes and things like that. And maybe it's okay for them to spend 300 bucks on a ticket. But in our fan base, you know, we're still looking into the 18 to 40 year old demographic usually. And, um, you know, it could be a little less, a little more, but, um, a lot of these younger, you know, audiences, they don't have that kind of money. And I, it would just, I don't know. It would be, I think it would be a little bit out of place for us to ask for that kind of money. But, but do you feel that t- ticket prices overall have just gotten out of control or just, or is it just sort of a certain segment that has gotten out of control? I think uh, to me, I've seen it in segments. I've seen it like the Elton Johns, the Bon Jovis, the, you know, people like that, that I feel like they're kind of starting to hint towards retirement and getting out. Um, and maybe this is their last go around. I know Elton John tickets are freaking phenomenal. They're just in astronomical prices. I'm trying to go right now. I seen his show last New Year's Eve and it was amazing. Um, and I want to see it one more time before he retires. And I know he's ending at Caesars soon and the ticket prices are crazy. And then he's going to you know, take it on the road for a year and then he's done. So I don't know, you know, I haven't seen it with everybody, but I, I see it with pop acts like big pop acts. And I see it with like the classics. Um, but rock has always been a little bit different. I think we're the rebels and, you know, I think we always have tried to service the fan base and, you know, not be so much about the money. Although, you know, being a realist, we have to pay our bills too. And we have to make money. Otherwise we can't put on these kind of shows or write these kind of records and spend this kind of time, um, you know, recording and things like that. So, but yeah, you know, we're, we're not Lady Gaga either. So, yeah. And, and it's important, I think, to, to, to let fans be able to afford a ticket. That's sort of, that's sort of the whole spirit of the whole thing. Uh, August 25th, 1998, the first Godsmack album came out. Uh, a good way to celebrate, of course, Rob Halford and Gene Simmons' birthdays, which, you know. Uh, talk to me about that first album. It is now 20 years. Talk to me a little bit about the Wait, ride. when did it come out? August what? August 25th, 1998, the same day as Gene Simmons and oh, Rob Halford okay. is born. See, you, you, right. it, it was a birthday gift to, to the to two of the greatest metal, uh-huh. metal gods ever. But talk to me about that first album. We are 20 years later. Uh, first of all, is there a sort of special celebration? I mean, during the set list, will you sort of play three or four of the songs in a row and, and say, you know, tip of the hat? Or is there something coming down the road? Or, or sort of just take me back to that first album and, and what it's meant to you and 20 years later. And what do you do? What do you plan to do to celebrate it? Well, listen, the first record obviously is going to be the most special record ever. It doesn't matter how many records we sell in the future. That first gold record always hangs center to my wall um, because that's your life. That's the, that's your, your sweat and blood and, and tears and everything that you've done in your life up until the point where it changed your life. And that's always going to have a very special place for me, but it's just, but for us, we just decided that we didn't want to, you know, mask and shadow this record with this 20th year anniversary thing. 
it's obviously a big deal. Um, and you know, it's, it's such a milestone to hit and we're really proud of it and grateful that we still are here and there's people that care about the band. Um, but at the same time, maybe we'll do something on the 25th year anniversary where, you know, we can honor that first record a little bit more. Um, right now, uh, you know, we're, we're in the middle of changing this, this band up and rebirthing this thing. And I want to make sure that the focus is on this new record and not the 20th year anniversary. Yeah, which makes <clears> sense. <throat> now, so so talk to me about that, because you, you've mentioned that in, in, in many interviews uh, prior to this one, that it is a rebirth. How so? I mean, in the sense that it's it's still Godsmack, it's still the guys, it's it's the songs are still there. I mean, it, talk to me about the, the whole concept of this is a rebirth for the band. You know, for me personally, uh, you know, even Shannon a couple of years ago went through a pretty strong life transformation you know we wanted to clean up and get sober and things like that and made some life decisions and uh for me as well you know i went through a pretty um pretty intense breakup where uh, you know someone kind of had turned on me that i never really thought could be that kind of person but it wasn't so much you know i've been there before been down that road and it wasn't so much that event that changed the, what I needed to do in my life, it was that event that kind of opened up another can of worms and made me look at my life um, in a broader, broader aspect. And, and I was just starting to see things and people in my life that just needed to go. They were there for the wrong reasons. There was a lot of negativity. There was a lot of drama. And I realized that I was just tolerating it. And, um, and I didn't want to carry their crosses anymore. I didn't want to try to solve people's problems. I just want to move on with my life. I'm at an age now. My daughter's, you know, 16. I want to be able to focus on her and my career. And I don't want to have to deal with people that just aren't growing and evolving. And so that being said, when I started writing this record, my biggest challenge is always trying to find out what my lyrical content is going to be. And when I kind of stumbled across When Legends Rise, um, it wasn't an egotistical statement. It was more of a metaphorical statement for saying that, you know, sometimes we have to burn everything that we have down to the ground and rebuild it in order for it to be right. And then sometimes when you do that, even though it's scary, you may get to the other side and find that there's a whole new life there and even better than the one that you have. Um, and so that's kind of what the theme is that runs through this record is just this whole thing of rebirth. Is that something that comes with, with turning 50? I don't know. I, I think it comes with experience in life. I mean, okay. some people may experience stuff like I, I, I lived one hell of a life from zero until I was about 30 years old. And I seen and did things that I got to tell you, if you read my book, you'll get a snapshot of it. If you haven't, that most people probably won't experience in their lifetime. So I grew up really quickly, you know, and um, from, from 30 to 50, you know, I think there's just a lot more lessons that you learn, but I think, you know, I think you just get older and wiser and you just start to have a lesser tolerance for the bullshit. Yeah, and, um, you know, maybe, maybe Gandhi and people like that on, you know, these born spiritual wise, you know, guides after all, maybe they're, maybe they just lived one hell of a life and learned a lot, and, you know, and have a lot of experience to share because that's what I think it is for me. And, um, and I'm able to do that, but I just can't let it consume my life anymore. I can't spend all my time, you know, helping everyone else and missing out on my own life. Yeah, and 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 I only ask because we're both born in, born in 1968. You in February, me in August, and I was like, oh, it's coming. And so I just want to know you survived it, which is good. Uh, Hometown Life, of course, was the uh, the solo album. 
is that was that sort of the point final? Was that sort of the, the the period on the solo things, or is or is there more in you, and there's more to say outside of Godsmack? I'm sure there's always going to be something to say if I look deep enough for it. You know, I, I I always write about stuff that affects me on an emotional level, and you know, I don't plan on having a perfect life from here out. I know that there's going to be things and events that are going to happen that are going to affect me emotionally, good or bad. Um, and so those are the things that I write about, the things that affect me the most. Um, they don't necessarily have to be bad. It's just unfortunate that sometimes the worst ones seem to hit a little harder. And that's usually when the pen and paper comes out later. Um, but there's also a lot of great things that I'm really appreciative for. And that's why songs like my light and stuff like that have come about. Um, so, um, I'm sure there's going to be plenty to, to write and talk about down the road, but you know, I never know what that is until I cross that path. But for now, though, you're 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 focused solely on Godsmack. There's not like I'm going to do this for a year or two years, and then I'm going to go do another solo album in 2020, and then we'll get back to Godsmack in 2023. You you don't have that kind of plan set out. It's sort of it'll be what it'll be. It'll be what it'll be, but I got to tell you right now, I really do feel like I want to just focus on Godsmack for a while. I may even want to do two records back to back. I'm not sure yet, but I do feel like it's time to really light this thing up. There's a lot of markets that we're behind on that I think we got to catch up on. You know, there's places, countries we haven't even been yet in the 20 years we've been a band, which is gross to me. So, you know, we need to just, you know, really kind of tackle the globe here and go out and, and try to, you know, create this world tour. Hopefully, you know, have Shine Down with us the whole way. Um, because the promoters love the package, the fans love the package, and um, and I think it's stronger together than separately. Um, and that's all we care about is just delivering an amazing show for the people. Yeah, and and that I'll agree with the the package with Shine Down is is really just two bands firing on full cylinders. Their new album, Attention Attention, is also brilliant. Your album, uh, When Lunches Rise, brilliant. It's going to be a hell of a night. I mean, honestly, it's just going to be fantastic. So uh, you know, I know. I, yeah. I, I got to tell you, not without bragging, but I'm going to brag for a second. I think it could be the best rock tour of 2018. And yeah. I mean that because it's just going to be strong. The bands get along great. The music's really compatible. I know what they're going to do for a show. I know what we're going to do for a show. And it's going to be, uh, it's going to be a pretty hard fucking tour to beat. I got to tell you. So any other bands that are out there, man, we support you. We love you guys. You know, we're always waving the flag for everyone because the better they do, the better we do. But you better step it up this year because we're coming strong. Yeah, I, 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 I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm not even going to call that a brag. I think that's that's going to be pretty accurate because between you and and Brent, there's going to be this competitiveness where you're going to want to outdo each other, and the fans are just going to benefit from that. And so it's it's just going to be spectacular. Um, Sully, I know you have another interview in a couple of minutes, so thank you so much for your time today. Of course, thanks. And uh, we'll do this again soon. Absolutely. I appreciate the interview. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. There you have it, folks, my interview with Godsmack's Sully Erna. New album is called When Legends Rise. Again, that song, Under Your Scars, absolutely, absolutely terrific very much worth checking out. Let us move over to Mike Portnoy of Sons of Apollo. Yes, we know all the other bands he's been in and the 25 bands he's currently in, but we are focused on Sons of Apollo. They came through Montreal in April, earlier in April. Absolutely spectacular show. Just 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 two hours of 
muso musicianship that you could never uh, that you just can't deny. And uh, this, of course, is the episode where I have done interviews on FaceTime with Ryan Roxy, Skype with um, Sully. So why not a back alley? Because what could be more rock and roll than being in a back alley in freezing cold temperatures before a show to talk to one of the greatest drum or drummers, a drum legend like Mike Portnoy. We do, of course, talk about Psychotic Symphony, the new Sons of Apollo album, touring and all that other stuff, Neil Morse. But we also find out about his plans for a solo album. Yep. A Mike Portnoy solo album. So please, without further ado, help me welcome the one, the only, and from a back alley, drummer Mike Portnoy. Good day, Mike. Pleasure to speak with you again. Good day. Is, so, that, is that a Canadian term? Good day, A. Good day, day A. Eh? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's very Canadian, actually. Yeah. Um, just talk to me about the coming out with this new band, because you've been in, of course, a lot of different bands over the years. Talk to me about focusing on Sons of Apollo, building the band. Sort of, what are the plans? Is it just sort of another side project, or is this something that you want to develop and have three, four, five, ten albums? And you know, this is the next. I don't. Decade. Well, I think we're too old to have ten albums. Right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, it is a, a band. Uh, you know, I, I hate like putting labels on everything. Band project, blah blah blah. You know, because right. everything I do is a band. Right. It's just a matter of how much time I could commit to it. Something like Flying Colors, we could only do you know an album every three or four years, and maybe a handful of gigs. But it's still a band. But here with Sons of Apollo, I view it very similar to what we had with the Winery Dogs, where we went out and we played a hundred shows all around the world, hitting every market in the world. Uh, and then go back out and do another album and another tour again. That's kind of what I think Sons of Apollo is going to be. It's going to be more of a, a full-time, you know, full-time touring act. This year alone, you know, we're, we're booked all the way through October at this point. Uh, we just did South America. Now we're doing North America. Then we do Europe and Japan. And uh, yeah, and we have, uh, you know, the the desire to keep going through for for many many years to come and make many albums to come. So yeah, that is the the, 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 goal. the goal and the vision and, and our hopes, yeah. Now, of course, you, you have played a lot with Neil Morse. He is in town tonight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he just texted me. Which is kind of funny, right? Yeah. Uh, talk to me about working with Neil because he's very interesting as a musician and the stuff you've done together has been very, very... Uh, I always joke, there's kind of, for me, there's the real world and then there's the Neil world. Right. <laughs> you in know, the van. Like Sons of Apollo <laughs> and Twisted Sister and the Winery Dogs and Metal Allegiance, all those things I do are kind of the real world. Right. And I'm dealing with all the metal people and all the metal outlets and things like that. But then there's the Neil world, which is a huge part of what I do, but it's more of a small specialized audience, you know, the prog audience. And I'm in three bands with Neil. You know, we have uh, obviously the Neil Morse band, which we've developed into a full-time band where we all collaborate together but he and I also have Flying Colors with, with Steve Morris and Dave LaRue and Casey McPherson and then we also have Transatlantic which has been going for almost 20 years now so yeah Neil and I have a, a, a whole you know a whole world together you know we've done like I think 18 or 19 studio albums and, and uh, yeah so a big part of my schedule and my career is always devoted to the stuff I do with Neil and then there's the other stuff which yeah, is stuff. you know Sons of Apollo Winery Dogs Metal Allegiance etc 
So um, talk to me about the winery dogs for a minute here, because Richie Cotton has recently said that he's taking some time off and he's going to go do his own things. You, of course, are doing Sons of Apollo. Is that a project that you're going to get back to at some point, or have we sort of said, okay, we've done it, and now I've got Sons of Apollo? Well, first of all, you used the word project again. Winery dogs is a band. Band. Yeah. Um, I don't know when we'll reconvene, but I surely hope we do. I know... All three of us love that band, yeah, uh, Billy, band. and uh, we love working together. So it's a matter of Richie kind of just uh, getting his rocks off on his own. He's, he's just enjoying doing his own thing. He's always been a little, um, I don't want to say scared, I'll say like hesitant to commit to a full-time band for the rest of his life. You know, he, he spent so much of his life and career as a solo artist. And then once he got swept up in the winery dogs for two back-to-back Cycles, which lasted maybe four or five years, I think it maybe overwhelmed him a bit, right. and he just needed to step away and breathe and not have to be so committed to something. He right. likes to kind of just float on his own terms and his own schedule yeah. and do his own thing, which I can totally respect. So at this point, you know, um, when he's ready, uh, you know, I know Billy and I would love to do some more, so we'll, we'll see. It's just a matter of when. Yeah, now, uh, the last time that I got a chance to speak to you, it was with Twisted Sister. Great day at Rockfest in Quebec. I, I had a great time. I it was, loved it. It was a fabulous time. Uh, talk to me about that, because when you look at the bands you've been in, Transatlantic and Flying Colors, and that, they're more progressive, they're more complicated. Twisted Sisters, more meat and potatoes. Right. Talk to me about the challenges, of, or not the challenges, but... The differences. The differences about joining that band and wanting to join that band, because right. some fans looked at them and went, whoa, what? Right. With them? right. Okay. Going from Dream Theater to Twisted Sister right. would be shocking for most people. Well, and, and some fans... Well, here, you mentioned that shock, yeah. and you're like, oh, it's not that shocking, he's a drummer. <laughs> well, if, if, the reality is, uh, I love everything. <laughs> Just because I made my name in Dream Theater for 25 years playing this incredibly complex music, I still was a fan of everything from U2 to The Beatles to Twisted Sister. I grew up with Twisted Sister. I, you know, I grew up on Long Island, New York. Um, in the late 70s and 80s where they were local heroes and I used to go sneak in and see them in the clubs. Uh, there's a picture of me in my high school yearbook wearing a Twisted Sister shirt. So um, my, my love of all kinds of music from Pantera and Sepultura to Jellyfish is, is what makes me who I am. Even though people picture me as this prog rock guy, I'm sitting here wearing a Kiss shirt. Right. Who would ever think I would love Kiss, you know? I love everything. How can you not love Kiss? Well, <laughs> nobody else in Dream Theater did, you know. Really? Yeah, you know, but I did. And that was the difference between me and, and those guys or a lot of kind of quote-unquote prog snobs. But right. I'm not a prog snob. I'm, you know, I, I just love music. So in answer to your question, when I got asked to, to, uh, to join the band and do these last couple tours with them, uh, for me it was an honor because I really respect them. Uh, I know their history and their legacy. I know those first 10 years because I was part of it. I was there as a fan. A lot of people just picture them as, you know, these MTV 80s guys, glam guys. But no, I know the history and the legacy. And for me, it was an honor to be a part of it. As far as me toning down my playing, I have no problem with that. I, I can adjust to any situation. And, you know, I did it with Avenged Sevenfold when, when the Rev passed. So, you know, I had already had that experience of filling in with a band, with a drummer that had passed, and the emotions that go with it. And in those situations where I've been a hired gun, I know my place. You know, I know how to play for the music and for the band and respect the drummer that was there before me. I know that's my role in those situations. I'm not looking to come in and 
have a say or have input. Right. I, I understand you're not my throw role. your weight around. Not, no, in fact, D used to like have to push me to do it. Like you know, when I first started playing with Twisted, I was being very reserved. I didn't want to you know kind of bring attention to myself. And D started to ask me, you know, do your thing, man. Throw your sticks, jump up. He even wanted me to sing. You know, he's like, start singing with us. Like so, they encouraged me to do that. But I surely would have never have done that on my own unless they had asked for, asked it. for it. Yeah. Yeah. Now. You, of course, have had all these different bands, all these different projects. Is there a time that you're going to carve out for yourself and really focus on a Mike Portnoy solo project, solo band? I said project, but yeah, no. but do, do you really want to do like music that's just for you and just put it out there for the fans and say, this is Mike, I mean, this is not... I know what you mean. I mean, it would be nice, and I've thought about it. I've thought about doing a solo album because, you know, I'm... I, I, I am a creative person. I write, right. co-write all the music with everybody I play with. I usually co-produce most of the albums I'm a part of. So uh, I used to write a lot of lyrics in Dream Theater. So um, it would be fun, um, but I just haven't had the time. Right? I'm currently in six bands right now. Literally, it sounds like I'm making a joke, but it's the truth. So I just haven't had a time. Ever since I left Dream Theater, it's been this roller coaster that just hasn't stopped. So yeah, I mean... On paper, it sounds like it would be fun, but right now I'm so committed to all these other things, and so many other people have um, expectations. You know, they, you know, they're counting on me now. Right. There's so many people that are counting on me for all these bands that I just haven't had the time. I think I got a taste of it when I did the Shattered Fortress uh, tour last year. That was kind of a nice taste of my thing, and me, you know, the attention being on me and me having the full control and. Um, you know, that was fun. I, I enjoyed that. But uh, I just, like I said, I think there's just too many people counting on me right now in other bands. If it ever came up, though, musically, what do you think it would look like? Would, would you be more progressive? Would you be more Kiss? Would you be more uh, jazz? I already, I already have it mapped out. I have okay. it in my phone. If I ever got to doing a solo album, right. I know exactly what I would want it to be. Let's hear it. I would break it down to four sides. Uh, and each one would be a different style with different co-writers and players. Okay. I mean, I would love to do one side that would be progressive metal, like what I'm kind of known for from Dream Theater and kind of what I'm doing with Sons of Apollo. One side would be more poppy. I would love to do some pop rock stuff in the vein of Jellyfish and work with somebody like Jason Faulkner or Roger Manning, uh, maybe co-write with like Damon Fox from Big L or Mark Michael from the Pillbugs. So yeah, that would be a nice side to show. Very different. Yeah. Then there would be the metal side of me, which is kind of what I do with Metal Allegiance. You know, uh, in Metal Allegiance, I get to co-write and play with all the guys from Megadeth and Testament and Slayer and Anthrax and Exodus and Lamb of God and Pantera. I mean, those are all the guys I work with in Metal Allegiance. So if ever, you know, I would want to have some of that incorporated into the album. And then there would be the real prog metal dark side, like something that I could write with like Michael Ackerfeld or Stephen oh, Wilson, Opeth something, something Opeth-like. So yeah, so it, that, my hypothetical solo album would kind of be broken into four little chunks with, with different co-writers and players. Instrumental though or vocal? Oh, vocal for sure. I mean, look, I'm not a, I'm not a great singer, but I love to sing. And I sing in most of the bands I'm a part of. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I would want to absolutely utilize that and bring, and maybe bring some guests in, yeah, like a absolutely, Schneider, perhaps. Um, and now just let's get back to Sons of Apollo. Of course, a Psychotic Symphony is the first album. See, I didn't say Psychotic Supper. I'm good at this <laughs> stuff. But no, uh, 
the, the first album came out, of course, last year, 2017. Do we have sort of a cycle in mind of we need to have one out by November and we've already started and blah, 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 or it's like, no, we're going to tour and then we'll talk well, about per- it? Well, personally, I would love to not talk about it and just tour, right. but inevitably other members and management and everybody and label want to start getting timelines together and that's important for me too with all the other things I have to juggle with I always have to kind of know my schedule 6 to 9 to 12 months in advance so as much as I'd love to not be thinking about it we kind of already are we're going to be on this tour through the end of October then we have to take a break because Jeff does TSO so we're breaking for the holidays but there's talk of us reconvening after the new year and continuing with some touring Right. For this first album, just for markets that still hadn't been hit yet, maybe right. Australia, uh, some areas in, in Southeast Asia. So there's the possibility of the Psychotic Symphony cycle continuing into the beginning of 2019. And then at that point, we would also start laying down the groundwork for a next album. And then <laughs> I just have to think in my head, once we're working on that album... Uh, that would be when I'd probably be out with the Neil Morse band for that next album. But I kind of have to think about these things in advance and map it out and juggle them. We're having that conversation because when you put a band together and you put the first album out, you don't know what to expect. Right. Fans could have turned their back on it. Right. And now we're talking about touring in 2019. I mean, literally two years. Right. From from the first album. Which is amazing. And it just speaks to the quality of the music and the quality of the musicians. And, And we'll end on that. Let's just quickly talk about the quality of the musicians we know working with Billy Sheen is something special we know that but how is it for you just to have these guys and, and, and their input I mean now obviously you get it with Billy and Winery Dog but you haven't done a band with uh, Bumblefoot before Derek of course did some Dream Theater stuff but just talk to me about these guys and the band it's it's such an incredible band it was my fantasy band in my head. I mean, right. this was the lineup that I pictured. Right. Derek and I were talking about a band, and this was it. It was Billy Sheehan on bass, Jeff Scott Soto on vocals, Bumblefoot on guitar. That was my dream lineup, and here we are. And everybody just fires on all cylinders. You'll see tonight, when you see this band live, it is a five-headed musical spectacle. I mean, it's a, it's a beast on stage. And you can see the look on people's faces where people just, like, their jaws are on the ground. Like, not only the technical abilities, but the showmanship and the performance and the energy. I mean, a lot of prog bands, I won't point fingers, but a lot of prog bands are simply boring to watch on stage. Yeah. It's all they're just about the music. They're, they're just, like, scientists doing a musical experiment. Yeah. This band has the energy and excitement of, like, Van Halen, with the musicality of Rush. It's kind of a great combination. Um, And, you know, talking about each member, I mean, I love everybody in this band. Obviously, Derek and I have that connection from Dream Theater. Billy and I have a deep connection now, playing in the Winery Dogs for so many years. Uh, But Bumblefoot and Jeff Scott Soto, to me, are the unsung, like, heroes and the big shockers that people are walking away from the shows blown away by. I mean, Jeff is such an amazing frontman. He's just... He, worked, he knows how to work the crowd. He's got energy and enthusiasm. His voice is so melodic and strong. And uh, to me, he's, he's, um, he's so... He's very underrated absolutely. in North America. You absolutely. go to Europe and they've done Wet and some of the other projects he's done. And people go, okay, I know this guy. Right. A journey, of course. Right. And people come here and they go, who's Jeff? And well, not for long. And they go, oh, yeah. 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 See, I've known. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then Bumblefoot's the other... Uh, piece of the puzzle who is just he is like a mad scientist on guitar and I've played with the greatest guitar players in the world and I gotta say Bumblefoot might be the most eccentric most 
deepest like musical knowledge of anybody I've played with. He's he's got incredible incredible sing too. depth. Yeah, he's got this amazing voice. He's kind of like the Glenn Hughes of the band in terms of the you know the vocal like. Uh, He's like, uh, what is the, the ace in the hole or whatever, yeah. you know, the, the secret weapon. The secret weapon. Yeah. The secret sauce of your yeah. sandwich. But what I like about Ron is that, of course, he did Guns N' Roses for so long, and he sort of lived in the shadow of, well, you're just playing Slash's parts. Right. But we knew better. Well, I knew better, absolutely. I mean, even when I brought him up to Derek, Derek was like, what? Can Derek, uh, can, can, can Bumblefoot play? play this shit? And I was like, dude, watch. He's going to outplay everybody. He knows what everybody's supposed to be playing. He's like... The musical genius of the band, to be honest, and he's very tasteful. He can go from doing a simple Kiss song to a Dream Theater song, well, and you won't even notice. That's how I connected with him to begin with. He, he and I have been playing together for many years, doing covers. Me, him, and Billy did some shows doing right. covers. Uh, we were the house band for Eddie Trunk's 30th anniversary show, where we played with Ace Frehley and That's Peter right. Chris and That's JJ French and Lita Ford and the Michael guys Sweet. Too, yeah, the Anthrax yeah. guys. So that was a great show. Me, Bumblefoot, and Billy were that the house band for that. And you know, I cho- I handpicked Ron for that gig. I was the musical director, but I knew he was this musical jukebox that could play anything. Yeah. And he, I also had him with me on uh, a couple of Metal Allegiance tours, where he was doing all the metal covers and, and stuff he, like that and he, and he could do it all so I knew he was the man that's why I like had him in my mind in view he was he was the guy always that I pictured being in this band and, and very wise and uh, we'll stop there because we know sound check is going to start in a few minutes but thank you for your time always a pleasure thank you man and uh, anytime alright perfect thank you thank you thank you this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn Mitch LaFawn from the Westwood One Podcast Network.